Mystery. You like mystery? Who likes mystery? Yeah. You like a bit of mystery? Some people do, some don't. Who watches mystery flicks like shows and a few of you? What about surprises? Do you like, who likes surprises? Like, yeah, come on. All right. Okay. Uh, my, uh, my grandma, who's passed now, she never really liked surprises. And the reason why she didn't like surprises is because the anticipation of an event was almost as much fun as the event itself. So you always had to tell grandma that something cool was coming and then she'd be a buzz for weeks in advance. Um, we, uh, we live in a world that's actually driven towards the gaining of more and more information about everything. Uh, for those of you who um, are aware of it, now you remember the, uh, the age-old kind of fear, if you go back a number of years, was, uh, was Big Brother. You know, George Orwell's 1984, that there's going to be this power that's going to restrict information and we're, going to, we're not going to know what's, what's uh, really going on. We're going to be controlled because in, there, there would be a limited amount of information. But, you know, I think we've probably transitioned into the opposite extreme. Um, and there's probably, there's probably some conspiracy theorists in the world here who could talk, tell me about the Ashkenazi Jews and all this back, kind of backroom stuff that's going on, right? But here's the thing. We are in a world that has an abundance of information. Um, and probably our problem now is not so much that people are restricting information, you don't know what's going on, but there's so much information, no one cares about it. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, work in organisations that love the idea of making sure that they can communicate everything to their people all the time. So you have these CC'd, BCC'd emails kicking around all over the place, it's got all this text in it, and in the end, you end up not knowing things because there's so much information and you couldn't be bothered reading it all. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Um, we, uh, we live in a world that seems to be keen to find out everything that you can about everything and uh, to find out the why about everything. And I'm not in any way anti-science, but we live in a world that is very scientific. And uh, I don't know whether you've noticed, but science can have a tendency sometimes to actually debunk mystery. Have you ever noticed that? They can debunk mystery. We uh, want to find out everything about everything, so science kind of dissects uh, down to tiny, tiny little pieces the essence of things. And I think the issue uh, not with science is not so much that it dissects and it finds things out, but there's an appropriate um, action at the end of that, I think, to put it all back together and just to appreciate the mystery of, of what it is, the mystery of what we've got. We research things, we analyse them, and we lose the magic in them. Listen to uh, Proverbs 30, verse 18 to 19. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand, the way of an eagle in the sky. So it's a mystery, right? Yeah, science would go, no, it's clear. It got an aerodynamic kind of wing on the animal, it's feathers, it's, it's light. It's got muscles and tendons and that sort of stuff. It can flap its wings. The rod of Proverbs goes, no, it's, there's a mystery to that. What about this? The way of a serpent on a rock. Now, uh, we live next door to the birdings. And the other day, they had a, uh, a green tree snake. And I've never seen, you may have seen it before, but I've never seen a snake just go directly up a vertical brick wall. So this thing had actually worked out that you could, if it got its body in between, the, like in the mortar joint of the bricks, so this body, this snake, just went at right angles, you know, and it was going directly up a vertical brick wall. Now, science could grab that and explain why that's happening and how it's happening, but at the end of the day, that's amazing, isn't it? It's just an amazing 
thing. What about this? The way of a ship on the high seas and the way of a man with a virgin. We'll just leave that last one. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about uh, humanity's penchant, so to speak, to actually work out all the details of every mystery. But you cannot go on explaining away forever. You'll find that you've explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as to not is, is the same as not to see. Do you, do you get what, I'm, what he's saying? Like if you dissect everything down and you take the mystery out of it, you end up seeing nothing. That's what he's saying. You don't have a USB port in your forehead yet. Have you noticed that? Some of you are going, I should have checked in the mirror, right? No one has it in their forehead. See, we're not robots that need more coded information to do life. You see, that, that's never going to be a human thing to do. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason why there's mystery in the world is because we're in the middle of a story. And mystery is something that happens in stories. You just don't know everything about the story at any one particular point in time. You, you know things about it as it unfolds over a period of time. And, and the thing is that even though, I mean, it's not our story, is it? It's, it's God's story. But just think about it, we kind of get dropped down into the middle of this story and even life comes to us as a story, doesn't it? I mean, the whole thing's a story. I mean, you tell story. what do you do at the end of the day? You get home and people go, how was your day? What are they doing? They're asking you to tell the story. Tell the story of what happened today. And it's a story. And, and so when you're telling someone about what happened in your day, what are you doing? You're actually unfolding a mystery about what actually happened in your day. That's the nature of what a story is. I mean, think about when you go to the movies. You, know, you watch a movie, what do you see over a period of time in a movie? But you see character development, you see opposition, all right? you, you find stuff out about main characters. Have you ever seen a movie like this where you're watching it and you think that a main character is who you thought it was, who you thought they were, and then all of a sudden you go, whoa, whoa, hang on, I've got some more information now. They're not who I thought they were, you know? And there's a sense in which there's a mystery going on and it just kind of unfolds there. You see, we are in the middle of a story. I mean, even you think about the movies when, you, when you're watching a movie and uh, there's nothing on the scene like that you're looking at visually that's telling you there's something nasty about to happen, but the music goes into a minor key. And you just go, whoa, okay, something is about to happen. Something is about to unfold right in front of me. All of human history is God's story. And we have a, a role in God's story that's probably about the size of a blip. You go, well, what's that? It's, well, not very long. I mean, James 4 makes it really clear that our life is a vapour. I mean, you just think about a puff of smoke. That's about how long it's actually going to be. But do you know, we, we, we've landed in this story and there's unlikely things happening in this story. There's an unlikely... If I can even go so far as to say this, there's an unlikely God that's writing this story. There's a story where there's an unfolding mystery. So uh, I want you to um, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. You see, Paul in Ephesians 3 
is, uh, is winding up again. Right? He's just been going on about these amazing things that we have in Christ and the things that God has done for us. And then you actually find in Ephesians 3 verse 1, it's almost like Paul gets a little bit sidetracked and he's just kind of going, I want to kick into this stuff and we're going to get, get into it uh, at verse 14 when we get to uh, the next section. Um, he goes, I want to kick into uh, more stuff, but hey, li- listen, I'm just going to pull up and I'm going to let you know about what's happening in the story and how we got here. So uh, why don't you follow with me as I read it, Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Do you see that? He gets like four words in. For this reason, I, and then he goes, oh, hang on, let me tell you about me and how I got in on this uh, story and what God's given me to do. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Do you see what he's doing? Like there's an unfolding story going on here. This mystery is that the Gentiles, all of us, if you're not a Jew, are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So here's where we're going today. We're looking at uh, the unlikely mystery in uh, Ephesians 3. And here's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to see an unlikely person in an unlikely place with an unlikely message. Go back to verse 7. To 10 there in uh, Ephesians 3. And you can see there, Paul's, Paul's going, uh, have a look at verse 8 there. He says, to me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. Paul's going, God's given me a job to do, and I'm a very, very unlikely person to do this job. If you have a look at verse 8 there, you can see um, the English in the ESV says, though I am the very least of all the saints. The, the Greek in there, Paul's kind of modified a Greek word to mean the leaster. That's kind of what it means, the leaster. It's like, find the least of every Christian that you can. Find the the lowest Christian of all of them, and I'm leaster than that. All right? That's really what he's actually saying here. He's gone from being a Christian killer to preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and it was all by God's grace. It was all God's gift. It's a little bit like this guy, Forrest Gump. You remember that movie in 1994? I mean, uh, it, was, uh, it was a huge grossing uh, film in 1994 about a very simple um, man called Forrest Gump who ended up being a hero and having uh, influence on a bunch of major kind of world events. Remember that? He actually ended up stumbling across in the middle of all these really kind of significant kind of moments, you know. And this is a little bit the kind of feel that we get with Paul here, except even more. I mean, Paul's not just a simpleton. He's a a Christian killer. That's what Paul is, you know. 
I mean, that's, that's what Forrest Gump has been called. He's been called a simpleton, you know? And, and somehow in movies, what do we love? We, it's kind of the Australian thing too, right? We love the underdog. We love the person who's, who's, uh, who's weak. We like the unlikely hero. And see, this is what Paul's actually saying in Ephesians 3, is that he is an unlikely person for God to use. And um, it's, it's incredible. God has been so gracious and good to Paul to actually put him in the place where he gets to preach and teach about this mystery that God's bringing uh, the Gentiles and the Jews together and recreating them uh, in Christ. Now, how did Paul actually get to this place? Paul actually got here. He actually got here by revelation. Go back to verse 3 there. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Now, our culture doesn't place a whole lot of value on revelation. Has anyone noticed that? I mean, you go kicking down the street and you walk up to someone who doesn't know Jesus and you go, hey, God told me something in the Bible that this is the way that we should be doing things. And you don't get that much of a hearing. All right, people think you, you get a bit of kudos in terms of being weird, but not kudos in terms of actually knowing something. And part of the reason for that is that our culture has been, is, is a little bit science-obsessed, if I can put it that way, in terms of how you actually find out what truth is. We're a little bit science-obsessed. Uh, the term used to describe the, uh, the branch of philosophy that deals with the nature of truth and how you know things is called epistemology. And you just need to know there's at least these five categories from which people throughout history have thought that you can actually work out truth. Okay? Authority, the senses, which is kind of science, reason. Now, reason goes right back to the Greek philosophers, right? Like you can actually argue something and you can work out the truth by, uh, by argument and reason. Intuition and revelation. Now, probably in our culture, the one that I would suggest it's probably at the top of the pile is the senses, which is science, and the one at the bottom of the pile is probably revelation. But I want to suggest to you that revelation is the richest form of understanding and knowledge that you could possibly have. We, um, we own a Ford Territory, and uh, for about the last 40,000 k's, our Ford Territory has had quite a, a whir in the diff. Okay, So if you know anything about diffs, that's not the person who goes to church here, but you know anything about diffs in the car, right? If you've got a noise in your diff, that's just going to cost money. It's an, it's an expensive noise, all right, almost all the time. So uh, the mechanic that we were going to, he, uh, he said to us, he goes, look, he said, just pulling it out, it's going to cost a bunch of money, so just drive it till it fails, all right? And uh, he goes, it could be a $40 bearing that we fix, or it could be, you know, a $1,000 rebuild. Just drive it till it fails, and we just going, okay. All right, and we've had some other things that he's done on the car, and we just kind of, yeah, you know, I'm not so sure about it. So uh, we um, we ended up. I found out about a guy who was starting his own mechanics kind of. It's a long story. Found out about a guy starting his own mechanics kind of uh, business, and uh, he actually got his apprenticeship at Southern Cross Ford when it was Ford. And uh, he's owned two Ford Territories, and he's on his second one at the moment, and he's worked in Ford for the last 20 years, right? And you know what? I started talking to him about some of the issues we've got with our car. And he goes, yeah, hey, you know what? That'll be, that'll be that. And this thing will be going on here. And then we've just got to do that and we can fix that. And he hadn't even looked at the car, right? And then I took it to his place to, um, to do a bit of work on it. And he goes, oh, you know, you need a new uh, rear kind of left bearing. And I'm just going, I'm sure that the other guy replaced it in the last 12 months. Like, what do we need another one? He goes, 
Oh, he probably didn't put it in properly. He said there's a bit of a knack to putting it in. And so it just becomes this, you know, our engagement with this new mechanic, he just knows it so well. It's almost like the other guy's just been trying to work it out and this guy knows, you know. I mean, you think about Revelation, you think about someone who actually, for example, designed a Ford Territory, comes up and says, hey, here's how I made it. That, that would be more like Revelation. Like the, the first mechanic that I was talking about, he's just kind of trying to find things out. Revelation is like, let me give you a specific uh, understanding of what this is all about. And you know what? You know what this is? This is Revelation. So you can work out a whole bunch of things. Like Romans 1 says you can work out a whole bunch of things about God's world, but that's nothing compared to the manufacturer actually saying, hey, let me tell you some stuff about how all of this works. See, one of the things that science does really well uh, is it actually tells you what is. I mean, revelation can give you a richness in that it tells you why something is and what the purpose of something is in a way that science struggles to get to. Have a look at uh, the way uh, Paul describes himself. He's an unlikely person who gets a revelation. Go down to verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a... What's that next word? A minister. Now, maybe you think about a dog collar. And I'm not talking about a dog's dog collar. I'm talking about some kind of pastor's dog, co dog collar. My dad always used to joke about saying that ministers would just get a margarine container and just cut a white strip around and stick it under their collar. Um, you might think about me. You might go, Peter's a minister. Well, I want to I tell you something. You know, this word minister actually originally, back in the day when this was written, actually came from the secular world. It wasn't a religious term. Listen to uh, what a minister was. Uh, back in, uh, in Paul's day, a minister was a table waiter. A table waiter. Like, think about that. Waiting on tables. A minister was the lowliest servant. That's what a minister was. So you can see here, Paul's taken a concept that existed in secular society, enriched it with the gospel and said, no, that's me. All I am is someone waiting on tables with the good news of the gospel. He doesn't think he's a legend which probably would be pretty easy to do if you wrote half the Bible, right? Like some of us, I mean, if that was me, if I wrote half the Bible, I'd have a few moments where I thought I was doing all right. <laughs> He's going, no, I'm a table waiter. You see, Paul's message was extraordinary, but his position was subordinary. You see that? That's the way he saw himself. He's an unlikely person. And, you know, let me just extrapolate that a little bit further. You know, God calls all of us to be table waiters and servants to each other. So where are you serving? How are you ministering the gospel to the people around you? Yeah, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5 and 6 talks about how God's made everyone a minister of the new covenant. That's, that is a great privilege. Do you see it as a great privilege? To actually like to be a table waiter? To serve? Remember in the early days of uh, the project, we had a guy come over from uh, Kazakhstan, I think he was. It's a guy over there running a drug rehab place over there. I mean, he, he talked about uh, every, every morning, I think it was, the, the um, government would send around dump trucks and they just pick up dead bodies and just throw them in the dump truck because all the drug addicts and everything that were dying overnight over there. These guys were, had a, a, a centre that was kind of ministering into that and seeing people come off drugs. And um, 
he was part of the AOG church and uh, he made this really interesting comment. He said, you know, there's a real problem in the AOG church, according to him. He said, there's a real problem in the AOG church and here's what it is. He said, there's been so much talk about how every single person is a minister. Um, he said, what's actually happened is that people have lost an understanding of the, the unique special call of being a minister in, in a special way like Paul was. Now, don't hear me kind of pulling the rug out from under what I just said, right? I think we all are ministers, you know, but there's, in a, there's a very real sense in Ephesians 3 here that Paul's got a special call to be a minister. He's, he's ministering in a particular way. And this, uh, this fellow um, was, was just saying, uh, we've, we've lost it. He goes, there's not many young guys coming through anymore. Because, and his comment was this, he goes, the young guys have worked out that everyone's a minister of, of the gospel anyway. He said, they've worked that out. They've worked out they can stay in their job, keep getting paid the same and not actually take a, a step that, that has got a big kind of risk and a cost attached to it. And, you know, I think he's right. I think he's right. You know, I, I think if there's one thing that, you know, and it's not a big concern for me, but uh, there's one nagging kind of thought in the back of my mind is that in the project it would be nice to hear a little bit noise about people going, yeah, I really feel like God's calling me to something, rather than just kind of settling into a, a, just a standard kind of existence. You know, what's God calling you to? Let me ask you a few more questions. Who's going to be the next church planter in the project? How about that one? Who's going to, who's going to do that? Who's going to be the next senior pastor of the project? See, we're not in a denomination where there's people in a Bible college somewhere, in a Baptist Bible college, that are getting trained and they're kind of an automatic kind of stream for us to plug into. Like, who's that going to be? Who's going to be the next project kids leader? Who's going to be the next pastor? You see, every member ministry should not kill off specific calling. It shouldn't. It should never do that. You know, and we need to be asking ourselves, where does God actually want me to be? What about, who's going to be, who's going to be the first international ministry that the, uh, sorry, missionary that the project sends out? What about that one? We're almost six, and we haven't sent out a missionary yet to another country. Okay, it's not a, I'm not putting it on you. I'm just kind of saying, what is it, what is it uniquely that God's wanting to do with us? Are we attuned to that? You see, you can respond to that and go, oh, he's putting the heavy on us. No, but go back to Paul in Ephesians 3. What he, what's he saying? He's saying, this is a gift. This is an absolute gift. This is a gracious gift of God that he's been called to it. He's undeserving. It's unexpected. There's a sense in which we've kind of received the baton from Paul. It's been passed on to a few generations before us, but he's kind of run it. He's passed the baton on to us. And we are ministers of a similar kind of message. Let me just uh, finish this point here. Introduce you to another word if you're not familiar with this one. Paul knew his eschatological significant, significance. Does anyone know what eschatology is? Yeah. Do you want to tell us, Adrian? Uh, cool. Perfect. Eschatology is a study of end times. All right. If your life is a blip, then the end of it all is really important. 
both your life on this earth, but it's really important in terms of what Jesus is going to come and do. He's going to wrap up the world. And so you just got to think, okay, I've got 70, 80, maybe 90 years. Where, where does my blip fit in to this grand story about where God's actually going to, um, where he's going to go and how he's going to wrap things up? You know, something that's true about Paul in Ephesians 3 is he knew his place in God's story. And it's like, I know what, I'm going to walk it out and I'm going to be really clear about it. And I'll just ask you this morning, do you know yours? Do you know what your bit is? Now, it's, it's not to write half the New Testament. Just sorry to disappoint you. But it's not, right? Like, that's done. The scriptures are done. But do you know your bit? Do you know your bit that you're supposed to be doing? It's just for a fleeting moment. I mean, James says life is a vapor. It's a fleeting moment, but are you sure about it? Are you sure about what you're supposed to be doing? Because I'll tell you something. When Jesus comes back, you will realize how long eternity is and how short life on this planet was. And eternity, the significance of your 70 years is going to be probably determined by eternity. What did you build into? What did you do? What was your place in the story? Let me just give you one more thing that may or may not help you. I'll give you a tip about one piece of your job. Listen to Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, this is Jesus, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you know what you are? At the very least, you're a trigger. Like if you want Jesus to come back, Jesus said, when the gospel is proclaimed across the world, I'll come back. So that, that's what we need to do, right? It's just like, okay, well, let's, does anyone here want Jesus to come back? Yeah. So we need to tell lots of people about Jesus. That's what Jesus said. It's like, that is an amazing significance, right? You can actually be a trigger for Jesus coming back. That's pretty exciting. Anyone excited about that? So just go and tell them, you know, I just think, okay, well, there's people in the world that don't know Jesus, probably haven't heard about him, and maybe God raises up a missionary at the project to go and tell those people about Jesus. That would rock, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be great? And we all go, yes, Lord, here I am, send someone else. An unlikely place. Have a look at verse 1 again. Just read verse 1 and 13 of uh, Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then go to verse 13 there. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Do you know what's fascinating? Look at uh, verse 1 there. Who is Paul a prisoner for? Not the Jews. He's not a prisoner for the Romans. He's a prisoner for Jesus. It's almost like he's sitting there and he's, he's writing this thing and he hears the clink of the chains and he just is reminding him. It's like, whoa, hang on, I'm in jail here. Why am I in jail? I'm in jail for Jesus. That's why I'm in jail. You see, Paul doesn't regard himself as a victim of the Jews or the Romans or anyone else. He says, I'm in here because of Jesus. Even in jail, Paul's saying that he belongs to God and he's on mission for him. You see, he had, a, had an unfailing confidence there that God was in control and God was orchestrating what was going on. There's no sense of victimhood here. It's clear that God's up to something. And if you go, I'd really encourage you actually to read Acts 21. 
Acts 21 seems to speak of the thing that actually got him in jail. You know what he got accused of? He got accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. And it actually says the Gentile that he was accused of taking into the temple was from Ephesus. So here he is, he's out there ministering to the Ephesians and he gets busted for it and he gets thrown in jail. It's unlikely. He's in an unlikely place. It's like, wouldn't you just go, no, the best thing for getting the gospel out is for him not to be in jail. And Paul's going, no, actually, it's, it's going to be the best thing for me to be in jail. And in jail, Paul reminds the Gentiles of God's eternal purposes, his divine plan, his role in it. You see, Paul knows that affliction and the proclamation of the gospel often go together. You know that, you know that to be true? You want to talk about Jesus, sometimes Christians get hated because they're hateful. All right? Or they're just crazy. You know, sometimes Christians just do stuff that's really annoying and just frustrates people, right? But you know what? At the end of the day, you could get it all right. You could be as winsome as possible. And because they hated Jesus, they'll hate you for it too. You'll get opposition. And you've got to have the spirit of Paul. You've got to have the spirit that doesn't see a setback as a setback, but sees God's hand in a setback. You see, Paul's saying here in Ephesians uh, 3 verse 13 there, he's actually saying that his suffering adds glory to the Ephesians. He says a similar thing in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. Let me uh, ask you this question. What setback are you currently experiencing that God is using for the glory of others? Something happens that you don't like, something happens that looks like a setback, how do you view it? In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about uh, being afflicted in every way, being crushed, sorry, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. He talks about all of that. And then at the end, he actually says, excuse me, when we're under pressure, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Who knows that's true? When you're dying to self, it's often life to people around you. But it hurts, right? Everyone comes to church and goes, yep, today I'm pumped about dying to self. (laughs) But it's actually really good, isn't it? And it's a real blessing and there's life for people around you. But the key thing is don't lose your vision in the middle of it. Don't lose your vision in the middle of it. Let me ask you this question and then I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. Would you go to jail for the sake of other people? If it all came down to it and you had the opportunity to tell someone the gospel and you knew that you were going to end up in prison, would you, would you go ahead with it? John Bunyan uh, wrote the uh, quite famous book, um, Pilgrim's Progress. He uh, lived in about the 1600s. Uh, he and his wife were very poor. As he uh, was coming to Jesus in his early 20s, he talks uh, in one of his biographies there about, uh, where he's talking about himself, he talks about uh, being beset by temptation. Uh, This is just a wonderful quote of his. Um, This is after he became a Christian. One morning as I did lie in bed, I was, as at other times, most fiercely assaulted with the temptation to sell and part with Christ. The wicked suggestion still running in my mind, sell him, sell him, sell him, sell him, sell him, as fast as a man could speak. He pushed back against that. See, John Bunyan was a non-conformist, which back in the day basically meant that 
the rules of the day in the 1600s was that you're only, you weren't allowed to preach in public and you weren't even really allowed to gather people together unless you were doing it as part of the Church of England, and he wasn't. So by January 1661, Bunyan was imprisoned in the county jail for preaching the truth about Jesus. Now let me just back up a minute and uh, share a couple of more things for you. Uh, John Bunyan had four children to his first wife. His first wife died. Of his four children, the oldest one was a girl and she was blind. So just straight off the bat, you just go, well, hang on. Like there's a cost here, okay? They weren't rich, okay? Um, but his, his, his wife died before he, uh, and he was remarried before he actually got thrown in jail. But just, I mean, he's got four kids here that, that need his support. His second wife, Elizabeth, was pregnant uh, when he was arrested and thrown in jail. And uh, she had a stillborn baby while he was in jail. Now, John Bunyan, based on the laws of the land at the time, he only needed to be in there for three months. All he had to do to get out was to say that he wouldn't keep doing what he was doing, which is he would stop preaching. So what do you do? There's, there's an ethical decision, isn't it? John Bunyan couldn't. Couldn't stop. He, he had a specific call from God. He, he just couldn't stop. He was in jail for 12 years. To support his family, he made thousands of long tagged, tagged sorry, shoelaces, which they sold. This is what he said about parting with his family because of being in jail. The parting hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. You hear that? It's not, it's not an easy thing for John Bunyan. I mean, you don't, you don't just go, he's a workaholic. That's what he is. He's a ministry-aholic. And you just go, no, like here he is, and he's working really hard, but someone's standing over him saying, hey, you can go as soon as you stop talking about Jesus. And he's just, no, I've got a specific call from God to do that. So what do you do? I mean, that's just a heck of a situation. He told local magistrates he would rather remain in prison until moss grew on his eyelids than fail to do what God had commanded. <laughs> I don't know what you'd do with that. Would you go to jail because of your ministry to someone else? It's a good question. An unlikely message. Go back to uh, Ephesians 3 there. The message, the unlikely message, you know what it is? Go down to verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a bit like the end of a movie. Like you, if, you, if you watch biblical history, you just kind of go, oh, okay, Genesis 12, there's a, there's a blessing there where God says, I'm going to bless the Gentiles through Abraham. You know, you know that story there in Genesis 12, 1 to 3? It's like, okay, there's something good's going to come. You know? And then all of a sudden we get further and further along and there's a few more pieces that come into play. And then all of a sudden it becomes really clear what God's been up to. And it always looked like the Gentiles were going to get blessed by God through the Israelites, but not like this. That's kind of what Paul's saying. It's like, they didn't know this. They didn't know God was going to do a whole kind of new recreation in Christ. This kind of, the 
a complete union of Jew and Gentile. A union with each other, kind of like a double union. It's like a union with each other and a union with Christ. You know, this whole notion from history of uh, who's in and who's out, who are the chosen people of God who aren't the chosen people, you know? I mean, we even talk this way now with ourselves. We, you kind of go, well, who's my crew? Who's, who's on my team? Who's, who's kind of in and out? Who are the people that I hang out with? Who are my kind of people? Well, God's going, no, like everyone is my kind of people. We want to bring them all in and make them unified. I mean, think about Jesus' disciples. Look at Matthew, the tax collector, working for the Romans. Simon the Zealot probably wanted to kill him. Let's get those together, you know. That's going to be a nice Christmas lunch, okay? And I'm sure they had lots of interesting community group times, right? But that's God's vibe, right? It's like I'm going to bring people together and I'm going to unify them. You see, God wants everyone in by his grace through Jesus. And this is Paul's message. And it's not just a lived message. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, people quote, and I've talked about this before, people quote St. Francis of Assisi, I think it is, uh, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. You heard that one? Which he didn't even ever say. He was actually from a preaching order uh, of the church at that point in time. Uh, you know, people had done some historical research and they, they can't really work out where it came from, but it didn't come from him. Uh, it's a spoken message, right? It's something that you actually minister to people. If you go down to verse 8, Paul says there, he goes, I preach it. This is a message I actually speak out. So I want to say to you this morning, and, and you've heard this before, like there's not many people who are going to get saved by you just being a good person. Okay? Do you know why? Because if you're anything like me, which I suspect you are, you're not going to be good enough. You're, you're going to fail. People will look at you and just go, really? Is that, is that what the gospel is? And, and at that point you need to go, actually, no, it's not. The gospel is all about the fact that broken, busted up, messy Christians are made new by God and they're forgiven and they're released. You see, we need to speak it. I mean, even the word gospel means good news. News, what's news? And news is something that you tell. You know, this unlikely message is a spoken message. It's a powerful message. You notice Paul in Ephesians 3 there said that he was made a minister by the working of God's power. Let's uh, just come with me there. Oh, I've just got to find my verse here. Verse 7. Go to verse 7 with me. Have a look at the end there of verse 7. Uh, this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. You know the Greek words for working and power mean energy and dynamite. That's how they can be translated. Paul's going, this message was given to me, and it's a powerful, powerful message. He actually needed the power of God to change him on the road to Damascus, but then actually live out his calling. He needs power for that. It's, it's not just a spoken message. It's an unlikely message. It's a spoken message. It's a powerful message. It's a lived message. Have a look at uh, verse uh, 8, I think it is. Sorry, no. Oh, I'm losing my, my verses here today. Oh, yeah, verse 10, sorry. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Let's start here. The live message is the church, right? Think about the privilege of the church. The church, as it's a whole bunch of motley, it's a motley crew, right? Isn't it? Is anyone with me on that? Let's just bring them all together and God gets, brings unity in Christ between all of them. And it's like in that, 
The message of God's wisdom goes out to the rest of the world. It's like, how the heck do you do that? Well, Jesus does it. But it's not just the, the living out of the church of this, this message of God's wisdom and his grace toward us. It actually affects us personally. Go down to verse 12 in Ephesians 3. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Do you know what? The more and more, sorry, the, the deeper and deeper your revelation of God's grace to you gets, the freer you're going to be in accessing the person of God. True? And I'll just, I'll just ask you, do you, do you f- just think about your relationship with God? Do you feel like it's, it's really fluid like that? Do you just go and talk to him about stuff? You know, Ephesians, uh, sorry, Hebrews talks about how uh, we have a uh, high priest who's able to sympathise with our weaknesses. Therefore, let us go to the throne of grace and get mercy and help in our time of need. Are, are you a bold little kid that runs in to their dad just in all confidence that he's, that he's going to come through for them? I mean, my kids, any parents here know have this experience? You're having a shower and you can't hear anything. You've got an exhaust fan on and the, and the shower's on and it's a tiled room and one of my kids is outside the door asking me for something. And I haven't got a clue what they're asking. You can just hear that someone's talking. You go, can you wait till I get out? You know, you call out. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? But there's a confidence there in the kid, right? The kid's just going, okay, I've got a problem. I need to go and talk to Dad. They're not even thinking about the fact that, that Dad can't hear you in the shower because of the racket of the noise and the fan and the singing. No, I'm kidding. I sing that loud. You get what I'm saying? It's just, is that it? Is it, is it bold kind of free kind of access? Is that where you're at at the moment? I mean, I, I'm just so thankful to God. In the last week, I feel personally like there's been a real breakthrough there. I've just struggled a bit this, this year to just kind of just have that regular, free, bold kind of access to God. And, and when I say struggled, I just, it, it's not that it hasn't been happening. It's just, it just wasn't flowing. And, and so I've just, in the last week, I've just, by God's grace, he's just helped me to just, I'm just going to keep talking to him all day long. I'm going to talk to him when I'm concerned about something. Well, we'll just have a chat about it, you know? And then first thing in the morning, instead of getting up and looking at my phone, I get up and I, I just go, well, I just need to hear what he's got to say. So I might just grab a Bible and just read a few verses and just go, right, I just want to get a tune there. And it's not, some of you go, oh, he's, he's putting religion on us. No, it's not religion. This is like bold access of a child with their father. Is that where it's at for you at the moment? You feel like you've, uh, you've got that? You see, flick a couple of pages over. Do you know what happens when you get clear about God's grace to you and the bold access that you have to God? Go across to Ephesians 6. I'm just going to read verse 18 to 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Listen to the next two verses. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, which I am in an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Do you know, if you spend lots and lots of good time in free, bold access with God and his presence, during the day, when it comes down to the point where you need to speak boldly about the gospel, you'll do it. You'll do it. You kind of you're attuned to the right place. You've got your awe and your worship in the right place. 